You know that one friend? The one that you can never agree with? That person that you can sit with for hours debating without really getting anywhere? It's not that you don't understand that friend's arguments. It's just that you come from very different places. You have different ideas about what is right and what is wrong. Well, I've got a friend like that. And let me be honest, it's actually really fun debating with her. She makes me wiser, even though we don't always agree. But what happens when we bring these same types of disagreements to the societal level? If we, let's say, need to decide whether to expand the number of parking lots or playgrounds, to protect wildlife and green spaces in the city, or to build new apartments for students, how do we actually agree on anything? How do we make decisions? The answer is democracy. Or to be more precise, representative democracy. The kind of democracy where we elect people to make decisions on our behalf. It's in this way that most of us participate in democracy. But is that good enough? Or could we do more? Democracy isn't just about settling disagreements. It's also about learning from our mistakes, talking to each other, receiving new input. In this episode, you'll meet two people who know how to deeply engage citizens like me in political processes. And their claim? We will actually come up with better solutions. It's time to exercise our democratic muscles. I'm Afton Halloran, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. We had a gentleman participating in Copenhagen last year and I called him on the phone before we participated. And when I called him to invite him to the process, he cried on the phone. Never in his almost 90-year-old life, he had never before been invited directly to a democratic process and it really touched him. The voice who just told us this story belongs to Zakia Elvang, partner and advisor at We Do Democracy a consultancy facilitating deliberative democratic processes. You may know these processes as citizens' assemblies, juries, and panels. As we've just heard, these inclusive processes can be quite emotional and powerful. And apparently, there's a bit of a deliberative wave going on. More and more public authorities are experimenting with ways to better engage citizens. But is this just a short-lived trend? Or are we witnessing the beginning of a democratic paradigm shift? According to experts from the OECD, a think tank on economic development, this newfound interest can be interpreted as a sign of significant change to democracy as we know it. Elected governments across the Western world are starting to give citizens a bigger role in setting agendas and shaping public decisions. In a new report, the OECD analyzes how deliberative processes are being used for public decision-making around the world, drawing on data collected in nearly 300 case studies from the last 35 years. The OECD concludes that more citizen participation can deliver better policies, strengthen democracy, and build trust. But just a disclaimer, deliberative processes will not solve everything. They do not address every single democratic and governance problem. But they are known to work well when debating value-driven dilemmas and complex problems that require trade-offs. 
They are also used to discuss long-term issues that go beyond short-term incentives of electoral cycles, like climate change or strategic planning of urban areas. So let's get the definition straight. What exactly is deliberative democracy? Deliberative democracy in particular claims that political decisions should be a result of fair and reasonable discussion among citizens. So it differs from other forms of democracy, I would say, in three main ways. The first being in terms of number of participants. The second being in terms of the type of participation and decision making that happens within deliberative forums. And the third being the participant selection method. This is Claudia Hvalisch from the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. She studies deliberative democratic processes worldwide. And according to her, citizen involvement is becoming increasingly popular. But why is this? As modern policymaking has become more complex, politicians, policymakers, NGOs and citizens are reflecting on how to bring collective public decisions into the 21st century. As the OECD report puts it, there's a need for new ways to find common ground and take action. And apparently, these deliberative processes have proven useful. But what are the benefits? Here's Zakia. When it comes to societal challenges that are complicated and maybe not with a very strong kind of A and B is not really the, the question. The question is what kind of lives do we want to live? What future are we working for? Then we need many different resources and energies and commitments in the room to be able to not just make a policy, but also make the change that has to be implemented afterwards. And I mean, of course, climate is the obvious one to talk about, uh, as it's kind of the overall question we all have to deal with. So none of us will be able to deal with the climate change alone. We need to be a broader group of uh, voices and resources on board. Some of the recommendations we have seen come out of the processes we run are bolder, they are braver, they are more visionary uh, than actually some of the recommendations that actually come out of our usual policy processes. Come to think of it, Who wouldn't want political solutions that are bolder, braver, and more visionary than the ones that politicians come up with? And all bundled up into a process where citizens learn more? It sounds almost too good to be true. Is this really what's going on? Let's hear more about the findings of the OECD report. What we did for this report is we collected close to 300 examples of representative deliberative processes. Uh, first, to be very clear what we're talking about, though, because they all had to have at least three criteria in common to be included in this report. So it's a bit more specific than what some people might have in mind. One is that all of these examples were commissioned by a public authority. Secondly, they all had the principle of representativeness, meaning that the participants were randomly selected and demographically stratified to be representative of the wider population. And then finally, they were deliberative. So this was operationalized by saying that they had to have at least one full day of face-to-face -face deliberation because deliberation requires time. And we found that this deliberative wave, as we've called it, has been building for quite a long time. The earliest cases that we found that met these three criteria are from 1986. And One of the reasons why we were really prompted to start this research last year was that 2019 seems to be sort of peak of the, of the latest wave of deliberative democracy. And what are the politicians and authorities initiating these processes hoping to get out of all of this? 
they could be categorized into being used for four different types of purpose. So the first being to develop informed citizen recommendations on policy questions. The second more lighter touch ones being more about informed citizen opinion on policy questions. Uh, the third one being informed citizen evaluation of ballot measures or referendum measures. And the last one being permanent deliberative bodies. Okay, so deliberative processes come in many shapes and forms, and they have different purposes too. Involvement and collaboration are familiar concepts in the Nordics, where democracy is perceived as something much more than just voting. In the Nordic countries, certain aspects of deliberative democracy, like public hearings for instance, are even institutionalized in legislation. But it can be hard to imagine what deliberative democracy could look like in practice. So Zakia helped me out with an example from Copenhagen. The municipality needed to decide if cars would be allowed to park in the inner city. A citizens' assembly was put together. So 36 participants were selected by criteria like age and gender and uh, postal code and housing form and whether they had a car or access to car or did transportation via walking or bicycle. So some of these data is, of course, also, or criteria is also something where you try to get data on more socioeconomic elements of the representation because we did want people in the assembly that was not only either car owners or not car owners. We wanted a fair mix of the of the citizens in Copenhagen. And then the group of people, they were invited. That was 10,000 people that were invited on this digital platform. Out of those 10,000 people, almost 1,000 came back and said, yes, we would love to participate. And out of those 1,000, we did a, a randomized selection. And out of those, <laughs> we, uh, we called them, all of them, and had a phone call with them, did in-depth conversation about what is this about and how is it going to happen and what are you saying yes to participate in. The citizens had five assembly meetings and one public meeting. From this process, they ended up with nine strong recommendations. I think the interesting thing about that process was that the recommendation that the citizens came was much more wide going. It, I mean, it had it, it suggested that we basically took away all parking in the inner part of Copenhagen. No parking lots at all, except those for people with uh, disabilities or uh, parking due to health issues and uh, the fire and stuff like that. But a very kind of strong, visionary, progressive recommendation that went far longer than the politicians in the city council would ever have imagined. So the citizens ended up making recommendations that brought significant change, which came as a surprise to local politicians. But if we are to use these processes on a larger scale, say on a national level, what should we know to get started? In the OECD analysis, Claudia and her team define the principles of good deliberative processes. First of all, they need to have a very clear purpose and real influence on public decisions. The process must be publicly announced, and the group of citizens involved must represent a microcosm of the general public. Underrepresented groups have to be involved and given access to a wide range of information. Also, the process should ensure that everyone gets a chance to speak, to listen carefully, and all perspectives must be discussed. And to top it all off, the whole process must be professionally facilitated. All that sounds rather ambitious, right? It makes me doubt that this is even achievable. So I challenge Zakia on how to get citizens like me engaged. 
I actually really don't think the barriers is about participation because we have only seen citizens that are very happy to be invited and show up in time, well prepared, you know, with a very engaged and listening and good participation effort. I really think very deeply that we have the level of competence that we are invited to have as people, as human beings. So if we are invited to be engaged and well thought through and listening uh, responsible citizens, that's how we're going to behave. I really think we very much also create the space for citizens that's uh, that's engaging. So I think the, the barriers are not about the citizens' participation, actually. I think the barriers are around... Sorry to say, old, uh, <laughs> slightly uh, conservative representative systems where uh, there is a distance between uh, between the citizens and the citizen, and where I actually think what I see is not only distrust from the citizens and the politicians, but also distrust from the politicians in the in the citizens, and uh, and therefore. Uh, a kind of a, a fear of what would this mean? Will I lose my power? Are we losing control if we allow this kind of participation? Zakia has a point. Not many democratic countries put resources into innovating their own democratic systems. In fact, many countries have constitutions and democratic systems dating back centuries. Often the only notable change has been the introduction of the right for women to vote. But just how can we innovate and optimize our democratic systems? I'm a great fan of the Nordic and Baltic countries. That's not the point. But we also have a we also have a tendency to kind of over uh, claim that we are countries where we all trust each other. I mean, in Denmark, car salesmen and auto mechanics are the only one ranked lower in trust level than the politicians in our parliament. So I mean, it's not that we all we are not having a trust issue also in our countries. Just just to say we do. <laughs> so I would say in some ways we are also a country with a low trust issue when it comes to trusting politicians. Um, and we can see what we do here. What we try to do is we try to have extra focus on transparency, very, very strong focus, as, as Claudia is so brilliantly uh, informing you about, the extra focus on good governance. Also in these processes, we really try to do a very good job in being very clear in the organizing setup of this to make sure there's a very high legitimacy around it. Um, and then there's the last thing I would want to add, because I think, I mean, I work closely together with people that are working on deliberative processes, both in Poland and Estonia and Latvia. And those are countries that we would usually consider countries that have a low level of trust also under national ranking. Um, and I do think that's a very important part here that has to be that trust is not only built and based on the rule of law and our governance systems, it's also based on the democratic culture. I mean, the way we build our daily life, uh, interaction, our level of conversation, do I feel invited? Are people actually listening to me? Are we having a good conversation? So the trust building part is also in the microcosmos of a deliberative process. And I can see that some of the citizens we've been having the pleasure of working together with in our processes, they all come out with a kind of a deeper insight in some of the political processes and also with some respect, kind of like, ooh, it's not easy to be a politician. So it's kind of also a way of building uh, a deeper insight in how uh, our society is working in terms of politics and also building trust 
uh, in the fact that it makes sense for me to participate. My voice is actually wanted. And I think that is just as important, maybe even more important in countries that have a low level of trust also. So far, we have only heard examples from high-income countries and regions like Europe, North America, Australia, Korea, and Japan. So I just had to ask, what about low-income countries? Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, initially in the data collection, we didn't limit it to just OECD countries. We were really looking, scanning the globe for examples that were to be found absolutely anywhere. But when it came down to it, there were only seven examples that were from non-OECD countries that are in this study. But what we did also find was that there are many really cool and interesting examples of deliberative practices happening all over the place, but that don't necessarily meet all three criteria together that we had. So for what I mean is that sometimes there are examples where participants haven't been randomly selected, but there's a strong culture of having local town hall meetings, whether or not even in a town hall. In some places like in India, there's a culture of them happening outside where the village, uh, everyone from the village comes and has very regular deliberations about taking collective decisions for that locality, for instance. And what about high income countries that are already doing well in this field? I'm sure that there's still room for improvement. Instead of kind of leaning back and saying, well, we just top any kind of statistics. We are best of class. We don't have to do anything. We could also say, oh, we are so privileged, extremely lucky that our ancestors built a well-functioning, fair system in many ways. And that creates a space where we actually have time and possibilities and resources to be innovative in the way we engage citizens in a broader way. And I... I kind of sometimes think that our countries become slightly lazy. <laughs> I would like to kick us out of that comfort zone because I do think we have a lot of potential in creating new, innovative, citizen-engaging methods. Um, and then there's a, a last thing, and that was the thing I also kind of slightly touched upon earlier on, and that is I think we have a, we've had a tendency to have a very strong participatory tradition for participating as volunteering in associations in, in kind of in Denmark, we have this joke that per citizens, per citizen in Denmark, we have a, a an association number also. Kind of every member of Denmark has an association, so we have a very strong participatory tradition for participating in that kind of context, which is good. That's not the point, but the point is, uh, we don't. We need a broad repertoire of different democratic methods in order to create more and better democracy, also in the Nordic countries, in my opinion. It's fascinating listening to Zakia and Claudia, but how can people like you and me get involved? Let me start. I'm the local practitioner. Then we let uh, Claudia be the the well-earned uh, cosmopolitan here. <laughs> I would say lean in. Find your own way of participating. There's not one right way of engaging in your society. Give this the same kind of presence and... and uh, an interest as you put in your career development or the life of your children, consider what will be my way of contributing and participating in the society I'm a part of. Open up, have eyes wide open in terms of finding your own strategy. 
the lobbying that has been done has been for more participatory processes. So more more ways to, to allow as many people as possible, whether that's through participatory budgeting or through having more online platforms and all sorts of things. And I think that it's only more recently that citizens' assemblies are, are something that are being lobbied for. Like I found it quite interesting, actually, that one of Extinction Rebellion's, you know, three top demands was for a citizens' assembly on climate. So it's, it's kind of a shift in recognizing that actually more deliberative processes are something that we can be lobbying our politicians and our, our political representatives for. After listening to Zakia and Claudia, it seems clear to me that governments worldwide can learn from these experiences with deliberative democracy and start using them when making decisions that affect citizens like you and me directly. The opportunity to strengthen democracies with better policies and more trust sounds very appealing. So I'm wondering, what will Western democracies look like, say, 10 to 20 years from now? Will the deliberative wave be turned into a democratic tsunami, fundamentally changing the way that we engage with each other and make collective decisions? Well, part of the answer will depend on you and me, on all of us. When our local governments call for our involvement, we need to participate and flex our democratic muscles. I'm Afton Halloran. Thanks for listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. Podcast.